This is Julie Fouché, host of the Pursuing Health podcast, and you are listening to the Low Carb Leader podcast. Welcome to the Low Carb Leader podcast, a podcast focused on optimizing health and performance through a low carb lifestyle. Every episode will bring you a step closer to living an amazing low carb life. Come join us for this exciting journey. And here is your low carb leader and host, Dan Perryman. Hello, and welcome to the Low Carb Leader Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Perryman, and you have joined me for episode 64. Today's guest is a nutrition expert. He earned his PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut in 2012. He then served as a postdoc research associate in comparative biosciences at the University of Illinois, and then he served as assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College, part of City University of New York. He moved out of academia. He now is a nutritional consultant, and he hosts his own podcast, Mastering Nutrition. What I really like about our guest today is he's really good at taking very complex scientific ideas and translating them into concepts that non-PhDs, the regular person can understand. So I really like that about him. And today's interview will be part one of a two-part interview. I cut it in half because it was a little bit too long for one episode. So you can get half today and half in a week or two. Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to kind of summarize this month. I called it Keto Month. We have had Miriam Kalamian on. She discussed keto and cancer. Then we had Sean Miner on. And she discussed keto for women and men. And today we have part one of Chris Masterjohn, PhD, who will be talking about the science and history of low-carb and keto. So I've been thinking a lot about keto this month. And as a result, I came up with a little free two-day email course. I've spent a lot of time on the low-carb and keto diet. And I really started it as a way to increase my energy because I was so tired after lunch. So I've kind of fine-tuned some of the ways to be low-carb or be keto and increase your energy. So if you have an interest in this free two-day email course, you will just basically get an email when you sign up and an email the next day. It will give you some tips on how to start or use keto to increase your energy and a few tips on how to arrange your day to take full advantage of your energy. There's certain functions or certain jobs you want to do in the morning when your energy is high, And there's some that you want to wait until later on when you're kind of tired. Higher energy, higher productivity, that's a great combination. So if you want this, you can text the word low-carb, L-O-W-C-A-R-B, all one word, to 66866. So once again, text low-carb to the number 66866. And if you check it out, uh, leave me some feedback at dan at thelowcarbleader.com. I'd love to hear feedback on the podcast and on the little keto two-day email course. All right, on to the interview with Chris Master John. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, very happy to have you on the show. So you are also a fellow podcaster, so you're the host of Mastering Nutrition, right? That's right. That's so, right. What, and uh, also the and also the most frequent guest on Mastering Nutrition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that makes it easy for scheduling. Sure it is. Yeah. So, uh, how long have you been doing the podcast then? 
I've been doing a podcast since the summer of last year. It's a it's a pretty cool thing having a podcast show. But we'll we'll talk about that later. But sure. Why don't why don't you just kind of take us back? I read your website and you have an interesting story and how you went from academia to your own consulting firm and website and everything else. So go ahead and take us through it. Sure. My podcast actually was a lead up to that. So I did the traditional route of well, not quite traditional. So I, I got a bachelor's in I got an associate's degree in liberal arts transfer, then got a bachelor's in history and then decided that I wanted to go to medical school. And while I was doing all the prerequisites that I needed to do that to the prerequisite science classes, I needed to do that for that. I then decided that I wanted to go into research instead. And luckily the prerequisites largely overlapped. So I went from there straight into a PhD program, skipped over the masters. So all of that was pretty unconventional. But then once I got into the PhD program, I went pretty much the conventional route. So I finished in a little over four years. I went straight from PhD to postdoc, and I did the postdoc for about two years, and then went straight into a full-time tenure-track faculty position. I was assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York. And I loved a lot of things about that. I love teaching. I love interacting with students. I love curriculum development. I love research. I love scholarship. So there were a ton of things that I loved about that, but there were some really big pieces that were missing for me. And one of those things is I am just in the absolute extreme tale of the distribution among desire for and need for autonomy in the population. So a full-time tenure-track faculty position actually has a ton of autonomy built into it. You are assumed to work on scholarship, but the content of your scholarship is almost entirely up to you. And you have to go to some meetings a couple times a month, you have to have office hours, three three hours a week, and you have to teach a few classes and be there for a few hours a week. And then after that, what did what you do with your time in order to fulfill the objectives that are expected to, out of you is totally up to you. So most people wouldn't even be able to handle or want that level of autonomy. But for me, it was nowhere near enough. And where it really hit home was there were just, I mean, I'm really a big ideas kind of person. So I like to dive deep and immerse myself in something and come up with creative ideas or creative solutions to things or a big treatise on something and, and then emerge to the surface and share it. And in order to be able to do that, you need to be able to take huge chunks of time and let the needs of the project dictate when you finish. And so I would start working on things like this in the summer as as a faculty. And then September came along and I wasn't done and I couldn't work on it anymore because now I had to teach classes. And I probably could have finished that project in four months if I had four instead of three. But instead I had to wait till the next year, try to pick up where I started off, uh, feel kind of lost getting back to it. Uh, so I just, I needed to be able to control 
my schedule over the long term, not in the not in the day to day. Like I had the control over my hours during the day as a faculty, but I didn't have my control over what am I doing for these four months versus five months versus six months in a year. And I also just I tend to be someone who does something for as long as I feel like I'm needed there and then find something else to do. And so you do in academia have this huge control over the content of your research, but the grand vision you are expected to conform to, which is you will be engaged primarily in three activities. One is teaching, one is research, and one is service to your department and the greater community of academia. And you you don't so you have zero control over that vision and it's a ton of room if you truly feel like your home is there but someone like me in terms of grand vision is more kind of nomadic and i just need to be able to have that control over that big grand vision where this is the main thing i'm doing this year but next year it might be it might look quite different for me Oh yeah, gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, back to your your PhD. What was the topic of your thesis? It was the role of glutathione and dietary antioxidants in regulating the accumulation of methylglyoxal. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a mouthful there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to I want to go back a little bit further. So you you were studying uh, for med school. What drove you over to nutrition specifically? There were a few things. So uh, what, there were really three things. One was the way that I was feeling about, about how my mind worked. The other was what my professors were telling me. And the third was what my friends were telling me. So I, I, I really wanted to go to medical school because I had these profound experiences with how nutrition could affect my health. And I wanted to pay that forward in some way. And so the most obvious way to do that was to go on to medical school. And at that point in transition, I was just finishing my degree in history, which really wasn't a disadvantage because everyone who had anything to do with admissions in medical school told me that liberal arts degrees are actually highly valued among doctors because doctors need to be able to understand the science to treat people, but they have a huge need to be able to relate to people and interact with their patients. And so uh, liberal arts degrees are, are, are valued in medical applications simply because they indicate that you can be well-rounded and you're not just a scientist. And so I figured I'm, I, I'm essentially on the same track that I would have been if I had decided I wanted to do this four years ago. That's the most obvious way to help people with their health. But while I was studying the lab sciences, I really fell in love with the microscopic aspect of the universe. So I just loved thinking about chemistry and molecular biology. When I took, when I took cellular and molecular biology, I was the only person in the class who wasn't a biotech major. And... I took it because it sounded cool when my A&P professor recommended it. And my test scores in that class were two standard deviations above the mean. And I was the, I was just taking it for fun. So like, I, I just, I just realized that 
my mind is so well suited to thinking in an abstract way about the things, about how things work at a level that we can't see, that it made way more sense for me to immerse myself in microscopic things than to immerse myself in the day-to-day interactions with patients as a career. And I don't, I don't, you know, if I had thought that over again, it's, it's sort of like I've come full circle. Like I dove really deep into that. And then I was like, geez, I need to talk to people. And so now I'm doing consulting and things like that. But that was, that was how my mind was working at that time. And at the same time, I had several of my professors who were telling me that I should go into research because I, that's what my mind was really well suited to. And I think that's that's kind of rare. It's it's pretty rare. I think for from their perspective, it was pretty rare to come across a student who they could just kind of pick out and say this person belongs in research. And so they were encouraging me in that way. And the other thing was I had I had started writing articles about nutrition back in 2004 which was uh let's see around a little after the time it was while I was doing my undergrad prereqs for med school. And there were a lot of people who were my friends and colleagues who were looking at my writing and seeing that it was, it was really, it, it was less writing that was just about, you know, some new way of saying what everyone already knew. And it was more like I was developing my own hypotheses and I was coming up with new ideas. and. I I personally realized in that that I was developing ideas that I knew if I didn't go into research would never be researched because I was the one who was passionate about those ideas. And at the same time, people who were reading what I was writing were really encouraging me to go into research because they saw the same thing in me. And so that's how I wound up taking that path. Oh, that's cool. It's cool how you found your calling before you ended up a doctor and then wondering if you should have done research. So yeah, very, very cool story. We're going to talk a little bit about ketones and low carb because this is the low low carb later. So most of the people listening are probably low carbers or keto, low carb ketones. It's it's been around for a while, but it seems like it's catching on more and more. Have you seen that in the, in the research? Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty clear and it's driven historically by the resurgence of the ketogenic diet as a treatment for epilepsy in the late 1990s where the publicity really hit home when there was a movie director i don't remember his name but uh someone who was really big in hollywood uh who made some famous movies like airplane was one of them uh a lot of really well-known comedy movies and his son had epilepsy and his name was Charlie and Dateline did a story about his treatment with the ketogenic diet at Johns Hopkins. And that father started the Charlie foundation, which was named after his son, which put up the funding for some of the first high level research on the ketogenic diet. And he also made a made for TV movie that starred Meryl Streep called first do no harm. And so all of this was happening around 1994 to 1998. And if you look at research studies, they were basically a trickle of less than 10 a year on the ketogenic diet uh, for decades leading up to that. And then from 2000 onward, they 
just mushroom out of nowhere. I don't know if it's more like a mushroom or, or more like a hockey stick graph <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. But but basically that that research, that publicity for the ketogenic diet and epilepsy drove everything that came after it because the ketogenic diet became more well known. And as people started studying the efficacy for epilepsy, people started asking, well, maybe it's effective for other things. And that starts with neurological issues because those are the most closely related to epilepsy. But then people start to say, hey, what if it's useful for something else? And I think that, you know, at the time there was also like Robert Atkins was promoting the Atkins diet for weight loss. And so that was another kind of jumping off point to say, well, uh, people are people are arguing in the pop science literature and the weight loss literature that this is good for weight loss, so let's study it for weight loss. So weight loss and neurological issues became the two things that it was studied for. And then, you know, now as, as the years go on, people are, are looking at it in sports performance and disease states that aren't neurological in nature and so on and so forth. I read your website a little bit, and let's just talk real briefly about how you eat. Because you you seem to have oh you would be you would be terrified by my carbohydrate intake. Well, that's okay actually, and, and <laughs> because I, I want to talk about I have a lot of low carb proponents on here, but you know sure. there there are downsides I'm sure of being low carb for too long or keto for too long. So a typical day of eating for you, what's that look like? Uh, well, I mean the typical day for me right now is different than it was three months ago and different than it was last year. So to take a little blip of me in time, right now I wake up and my overwhelming goal in the morning is to get is to get uh is to focus on getting bright sunlight for the sake of my circadian rhythm and to focus on getting some food and coffee into my system in an efficient manner that doesn't require a lot of thinking, doesn't require a lot of food prep, doesn't require a lot of time to eat. Because even if I minimize eating, my my, my daytime, my morning routine just to get going still takes an hour or an hour and a half. And so I just don't want to delay getting a start to a productive day longer than it has to be. And I don't want to exhaust my mind before I start applying my mind to useful things with work that'll move the, the needle forward. So my breakfast now is two 400 calorie bottles of Ample. Ample is a meal replacement drink that is intending to be, and actually Ample is fairly low in carb and fairly high in fat compared to the rest of my diet. Uh, and they're coming out with a keto version later in the year as well. Uh, but even their regular version is fairly, uh, fairly low in carb and high in fat. Um, but I, so I get 800, I basically try to eat five meals a day that are each 800 calories. And that's because right now I'm focusing on gaining muscle. And so I'm eating a lot more calories than I would if I wasn't focusing on gaining muscle. Um, so two bottles of ample take about two to three minutes to prepare and consume and clean up altogether. And so it just fits really well with what I'm doing. And I'm friends with the founder and CEO and I'm an advisor to the company, and so I, I really like what he's doing with the vision to try to make something that's convenient and yet incorporates the principles of whole foods nutrition and prebiotics and probiotics and all those kinds of things. 
Um, so that's my breakfast. And then the rest of my meals, the rest of the day, I really focus on three things. One is getting enough calories. And so that basically means hitting seven or 800 calories with each meal. I, the second is getting enough protein. And so I try to hit at least 30 grams of protein per meal. The third is try to get whole foods that I digest very well. And so when I'm on top of my game, that winds up being to a very large proportion potatoes that I've cooked in my Instapot, which is a programmable pressure cooker. And I'll just, I'll just cook a whole batch of potatoes and then I'll wrap them up in foil in small doses of like two potatoes per foil wrap so that I can just take those out and reheat them. So I'll probably have that alongside some kind of protein. It might be fish. It might be chicken. Just kind of depends on the day of week. It might be beef. Uh, I don't, I don't really care. It might be liverwurst. It might be cheese or it might be hard, uh, soft boiled eggs. Could be any of those things. Just try to put together 30 grams of protein and fill up the rest of the calories. Um, and apart from potatoes, bananas are a key staple for me. I try to get green vegetables in, but right now I'm so busy that that basically means opening up triple washed greens and just eating several cups of them straight. <laughs> so, um, I'll often throw tomatoes in there because they're a good source of potassium along with the potatoes and bananas that I'm eating. Uh, that's what my diet looks like for the most part. And then, you know, on, when I'm not on top of my game, I wind up eating more grains. I feel better when I do, I feel better when I eat less grains, but you know, sometimes even cooking a batch of potatoes in the Instapot is kind of too much for me. And I wind up getting some, usually some kind of sprouted whole grain material like sprouted corn tortillas or sprouted multi-grain English muffins from Food for Life or something like that. Those are my, those are my quick convenience foods. Low carb. Would you say that low carb ketogenic diet is good for generally everybody or because I know a lot of people get on low carb and they stay on it forever or stay ketogenic all the time. And I know that's a, that's a broad question because there's a lot of different factors, but just in general, is a low carb diet preferred in your mind or are there downsides of being on low carb? Well, if I thought low carb was the preferred diet for everyone, I'd probably be eating a low carb diet. And I really don't think anyone would consider my diet low carb. I probably eat four to 500 grams of carbs a day. Uh, sometimes 300, it, it really depends. Granted, I'm eating 4,000 calories a day. So as a percentage, it's not as high as it would seem. Uh, but still, I mean, no one would consider my diet low carb. I, you know, it's, it's like, there's no ideal diet that is good for everyone. I think two important rules of nutrition that I mean, there's a lot of rules of nutrition that the nutritionally conscious spheres are good at acknowledging, like eat whole foods, don't eat junk. But there are some rules that almost everyone in the nutritionally conscious spheres are terrible at acknowledging, which one of those is that your nutritional needs are not the same as my nutritional needs, or put more generally everyone's nutritional needs are different. And then the second is my nutritional needs right now are not what they used to be. And someday they're going to be different. Put more generally, 
people's nutritional needs change over time. And I think people get very stuck in believing that one particular thing that's working for them at the moment works for everyone. And people get very stuck in believing that whatever's working for them in the moment is going to continue working for them always. And some people, you know, those people eventually transform into the people who are doing something that's not working for them right now. And they assume it is because it used to. <laughs> and, and that's the, you know, if you, if you don't acknowledge that what is working for you right now might not always be the ideal thing for you and that your needs might change, if you don't acknowledge that now, you're eventually going to become someone who's stuck in a rut, who's doing something that isn't working anymore, and you don't realize it because you've, you've just uh, become fixed in believing that a particular thing is the way to go. So... I, so as that as a as a um, as a preface to my comments on low carb is is basically uh, nothing's good for for everyone all the time, but you know if you like let's start with keto. So the ketogenic diet is a diet that it's a biohacking diet that takes the physiology of the fasting state and tries to mimic it in a way that's more sustainable over time than fasting. So if you fast forever, you die of starvation, and that's not sustainable. And that was the basis for the development of the ketogenic diet in the 1920s. People were using fasting to reduce the incidence of seizures in epileptics, and people at the Mayo Clinic said, hey, if we can find a way to mimic the fasting state in a way that allows people to continuously eat that diet over time, then we have a way to use this for more than a few weeks without causing serious damage. And the hypothesis was maybe what's, what's the active component of fasting is the production of ketones. We can produce the ketones by restricting carbohydrate and increasing the fat content of the diet. And thus the ketogenic diet was born. But the ketogenic diet was born in the Mayo Clinic. It was not born in the African savanna. We did not evolve eating a perpetually ketogenic diet all the year long. There's a few reasons why that's really clear. So first of all, our evolution comes from equatorial Africa. And as you look at traditional diets going from the poles to the equator, they get higher and higher in plant foods. Hold on, I have to, oh, I thought I had to sneeze. Okay, they get higher and higher in plant foods as you get closer to the equator, and they get lower and lower in plant foods as you get further from the equator. So putting aside whatever differences there might have been in fluctuations of climate over time, we basically evolved in the warmest part of the earth where for any given era, the plant foods are gonna be the highest. If you look at human genetics, humans stand out from other primates as having numerous duplications in the salivary amylase gene, which is a very, which is a gene whose purpose is to start digesting starch in the mouth. It's a starch-specific gene, and there are more duplications in this gene among people whose traditionally diet, traditional diets were very starch-rich, but everyone even on even isolated populations that consume a low starch diet 
show massive duplication in the salivary amylase gene, which means that it was burned into the history of all humans that deep down in the past during our evolution, that we had evolutionary pressure to be able to start digesting starch in the mouth. And probably the role of salivary amylase is less to do with digestion and more to do with signaling. So if you have high salivary amylase activity, if you eat something starchy, you start generating some sugar in the mouth, and that acts on taste receptors to warn your pancreas that there's some starch on the way, and your blood sugar and insulin response to the starch is much smoother. So it's basically a metabolic adaptation to eating starch that's burned into human evolution in our deep ancient prehistory. And then finally, if you look at where the where where the traditional diets are that you would expect to be most ketogenic, it's clearly in the Arctic because in the Arctic you have the environment imposing a very low consumption of plant foods for most of the year and that's where the diet has to be really high in fat probably moderate in protein and low in carbohydrate almost all the time. And almost everyone in the Arctic actually has uh, genetic impairments in their ability to make ketones. It's called CPT1A deficiency, and it basically allows your muscles and your heart to burn fatty acids, but it prevents your liver from taking fatty acids and making ketones. And this this uh, genetic deficiency in the ability to make ketones, not only is it normal in the Arctic, but evolutionary biologists who have looked at how it became so widespread in the Arctic have concluded that it was it's one of the strongest selective sweeps ever discovered for humans. A selective sweep means... Like if you if you look at a gene and you find that it's the normal gene in one population and it's not found anywhere else, that could be because someone moved to an island who had that gene. They're the only person on the island. They meet with they mate with one other person and then everyone that's born from them populates the island. You know, or it could have been a few people, whatever. But pretty much everyone on that island has this gene because the founder of that population had it. That's called the founder effect. And that does not imply the gene is beneficial. A selective sweep means there was a bunch of people in that environment, there was a bunch of genes in that environment, but the environment judged a particular gene to be so beneficial that everyone who had it outbred everyone else. And that is what characterizes the impairment and the ability to make ketones among Arctic populations. But not only is it that kind of evolution, but the evolutionary biologist who looked at this said it's one of the strongest selective sweeps ever discovered for humans. That means that the Arctic, which imposes a high-fat diet on the population year-round with no ability to choose otherwise, it selected for the impairment and the ability to make ketones, basically judged that impairment as one of the most beneficial characteristics that's ever been matched to a particular environment across the span of human history. So you have to ask why that's the case. And I believe it's basically, I believe an explanation for this is basically as follows. So you and I could both do a ketogenic diet and maybe you feel great on the ketogenic diet and you stay on it. 
Whereas I go on the ketogenic diet and, you know, I feel like this doesn't really work for me. And so I stop. And so, you know, just like many of your listeners who are doing keto, they're doing keto because they did keto and they judged that it benefited them. If, if you think about what the Arctic environment was like, it was, it was not like that. The environment said, you don't like keto? Tough luck. All you have to eat is seal blubber and you don't get anything else. And so if you had people who didn't do well for health reasons on a ketogenic diet, for example, being on a ketogenic diet puts a lot of acid load pressure on your buffering capacity because ketones are acidic. We should be able to handle that, but what if we have an impairment in our buffering capacity? We could become vulnerable to ketoacidosis, which is typically associated with diabetes, but it can occur in people who are non-diabetic given the right health circumstances. And so I think that being forced into ketosis all the time made it so that some of the Arctic populations, not, not everybody, but just a portion of the population who couldn't handle the acid load, for example, would get really, really sick and that and they wouldn't be reproductively fit. And so if someone in that population uh, did not have the ability to make ketones very well, they would shift just using fatty acids to their muscle and heart, they'd shift using glucose for their brain, and they could eat seal blubber all day long, and no matter what other things there are about their health, they're never going to get ketoacidosis, they're never going to feel sick from the acid load, etc., and so when I look at that, I think it's a stunning case of evolution that strongly argues against the ketogenic diet being the ancestral diet for humans. And so when I go forward to answer your question about, you know, is it for everyone, my presumption is we really want to start at, at a baseline of the characteristics that we could say were the ancestral diets for most humans. And that's not ketogenic. But when we look at how the ketogenic diet came, it came in the 1920s when people said, look, it doesn't matter what's ancestral. It doesn't matter what's normal. Some people in our society aren't doing well. And when we create this diet that is a biohack, a medical biohack to mimic the physiology of fasting, we can take people with serious problems and reverse them. So I support the ketogenic diet as a biohack, but I don't think it makes any sense that everyone should be on it all the time. And I think it's really dangerous to make up myths about it being the diet that everyone was on all the time before humans started cultivating grain, because that's just not true. Thank you for being with us today, and we hope that you are on the road to your successful low-carb lifestyle. Become a leader in your health and a leader in life. Check us out at www.thelowcarbleader.com. And remember to join Dan again next time on the Low Carb Leader Podcast.